Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Let's do this thing. It is Monday, which means it's time for the Front 3 podcast. And this Monday is a Front 2, ladies and gentlemen. Just myself, Adam Bogwood, and the one and only Chris Hennich. Chris, how you doing? I'm not bad. Big man, little man tonight. I'll yeah, let you I decide think... which is which. Yeah, yeah, we'll let you audience decide that. Uh, it's just us two tonight. At Front 2, as I said, we're going to be talking all the FA Cup third round action, as well as the fourth round draw. Uh, part two, we're actually going to be talking to Elliot Hackney from the Bear Pit TV, longtime friend of the show. Uh, finally got him on because Mark Hughes, ladies and gentlemen, has been sacked. We're going to be discussing that in detail in part two before in part three, talking a little bit about the transfers. There's, uh, you might have heard, unless you've been living under a rock, that a certain Premier League player has just become the second most expensive player of all time. That's right, Philippe Coutinho has moved to Barcelona for a £142 million fee. There's also talk of Alexis Sanchez moving to Manchester City. But before that, we do have to talk about the FA Cup, Chris. Um, a lot of action going on this weekend, but what stood out for you? Surely, you know, not just because I'm a Spurs fan, but I just want to bring the attention first off to Arsenal, Chris, who are out of the FA Cup. The holders were knocked out by a superb Nottingham Forest. The Gunners losing an FA Cup third round tie for the first time ever under Arsene Wenger. Nottingham Forest now the first team from a lower division to score four plus goals against Arsenal in an FA Cup tie since Hull City in January 1908. Um, what did you make of this game? Um, it was a curious game in a lot of ways because I think Arsenal had you know the superior possession. They were technically better, I thought, than than what was a very young Forest side, first and foremost, under under Gary Brazil, who was caretaker in the wake of Warburton's depart- Mark Warburton's departure. Um, but but it felt like there was a distinct lack of urgency from Arsenal. Um, they had a couple of youngsters in there, Reese Nelson, Mayla um, Niles, who I actually thought linked up quite well in the first half down the left. But overall, it felt... It felt like a training match at times from an Arsenal perspective. I thought Forest were, were quite quick and direct and aggressive when they had the ball. They moved it from back to front in quite an efficient manner. But the contrast was was definitely the fact that for Arsenal, there, there wasn't that same sense of of urgency when they had the ball. In fact, they were they were quite comfortable just to to try and pass it side to side and, and find a gap that wasn't really going to present itself. Obviously. Arsene Wenger's been in a little bit of hot water recently, given his comments about referees, but uh, I'm sure he wouldn't have been happy about the decision that led to the penalty for Forrest. I mean, for you, was that a penalty? I felt like Debussy, who I forgot it existed, uh, felt like he got the ball to me there. I think there was, was there cause for, for grievance from Arsene Wenger's point of view? Yeah, I think I think he definitely had a good shout there. I think, you know, it's funny because we're discussing... VAR a lot at the minute. It's a very prevalent topic. The the Debushi penalty at one end, and then the non penalty on I think it was Welbeck at the other end, put forth a pretty good uh, campaign, if you will, for VAR and its and its relevance and uses in situations like this. Um, because obviously, if if those decisions are both given, it's potentially two two and and not three one. Um, so. 
yeah, I think it's it's something that, that Wenger will certainly be uh, frustrated by, annoyed by. And yet, at the same time, you look at the defending for the first goal from, from Eric Lehigh. Inexcusable. He's all on his own. Yeah, there's a, there's a huge sort of canal almost between the defensive line of Arsenal and David Ospina that Lehigh just wanders into so nonchalantly and then converts ahead quite comfortably. I think, to me, that's... You, you can't always control officiating in that sense. You know, you, In fact, you can't control officiating and what's given and what's not given. You can control your defensive line or the lack of, of organisation, shall we say, from your defensive line in picking up its markers. And I think mm. that should infuriate him just as much as, as any decisions that were or weren't given. Controversy as well over the penalty itself. Kieran Dow's penalty uh, appeared to clip his right foot, sort of double hit technically as he slid as he hit it. Um, I mean... To me, it looked great as it sort of looped into the net, but I'm sure Arsenal fans found it uh, found it less pleasing on the eye. Um, should we move on to talk about Liverpool? Liverpool through after uh, after beating Everton in the Merseyside derby on Friday night. Uh, not a bad start for uh, for Van Dijk. Eh? His life at Liverpool, uh, scoring the winner. Anfield. Yeah, a wonderful way to start his career there's a, there's a few players it seems that have scored on the debut there was a list of them floating around I know Suarez was was one of them um, yeah this this game played out not terribly dissimilar to uh, the meeting in the league between these two where I thought Liverpool were very much leading the game in terms of wanting to, to have the ball and try and use it and for Everton it was very much about damage limitation from that end and, and it, it does seem like it's a trend in the Premier League this season this notion that teams will quite happily um, give up possession to to their opposition when they sense there is a, a, a technical disadvantage on, on their end and I think what you saw was how clinical Everton can be from from counter-attacking opportunities because their goal was beautifully put together from from back to front I thought it was it was really um, well orchestrated and well finished by Gilfie Sigurdsson and yet at the same time I don't think we're sitting here saying that Everton had really any right or cause to to really win the game. You know, there was there was not a huge swathe of chances outside of of that goal that they created, um, and I think their efficiency, if you will, with chances, while admirable, is possibly what's holding them back a little bit um, under Sam Allardyce. They are taking more shots inside the box. I read, which is is quite interesting than under uh, Unsworth and, and Coleman but overall they're still not taking a, a massive number of shots so maybe it's more of a case of, of quality over quantity um, for Everton right now Liverpool going through to play West Brom now in the fourth round um, what else do we have oh let me talk a little bit about your team Chris Newcastle sailing through to the fourth round themselves a 3-1 win over Luton Town yes a fairly fairly cut and dry uh, result really in, in terms of Newcastle, I, th- I think more than anything, um, just having that bit of quality that you would expect from a top flight side. Um, Luton are fantastic in, I think they're in League Two. They, they're going really well. They're scoring a lot of goals. Um, I think it's between them and City for who scored the most in, in English football, in English professional football, at least uh, this season. And you could definitely see that from them. They created a, a good number of chances. Danny Hilton's goal was maybe a little bit. Uh, fortunate in terms of you know it's a goalkeeper mistake as much as anything but they hit the crossbar uh, Hilton had one ruled out for offside that was very close so I think yeah Luton gave a, a fantastic account of themselves um, but I think for, for them it was more just a case of Newcastle had that bit of potency and, and if their goalkeeper I mean he dropped the first one but after that he recovered brilliantly and pulled out some, some really good saves I think if they'd not had him that was as much what kept it at three one as anything. Iosi Perez with a brace as well, so uh, good form from him recently. Yeah, he's been in fantastic form. It's um, it's funny, I, I wasn't aware of this custom, but apparently um, Spaniards will eat twelve grapes after midnight strikes. Have, right. have you heard of this before? Is this, <laughs> this is this is news to me. This is all news. Yeah, I, I promise this is not a hilarious. Um, wind up that will play back to you but yeah apparently this is the thing that they do in Spanish culture where they eat 12 grapes um, I think it's like it's after the, either just after midnight or just before and it's supposed to bring them good luck um, so the club did like a small little 
four or shoot if that's even two grand a word with Perez, Marino, Manquillo and Hosolu on on the stroke of midnight. Obviously the next day Hosolu, uh, Perez, excuse me, scores the winner against Stoke. Got two since then. And I think to be fair to him, he, he's not a world-class finisher, but I do get the distinct feeling he's the best finisher that Newcastle have at the minute. Um, I think Gale's lacking confidence. I think Hosolu doesn't have that killer streak in him. Um, and Mitrovic is, has already been deemed surplus to requirements um, by Rafa Benitez, so I, I can't see him coming in anytime soon. So it's there's a potential that he nails down that number nine spot. He's largely played a number 10 role for, for Rafa Benitez, but he drifts in and out of games horribly when, when he plays that position. Whereas actually, I think when you get him in the box, when you get him, I would say, the final 15 yards, if you will, from from goal, that's when he becomes most dangerous, when he can run at players in tight spaces where they're afraid of giving away a penalty, or he can find himself in the box just needing to put a finishing touch to something. That's that's sort of his role, and I'll be curious to see, especially with, with a big game against Swansea at the weekend, uh, very much a, a six-pointer, whether he'll stick with Iosi in that, that more advanced role, or possibly try to, to play him off someone like he has for for a large portion of his, his time in Newcastle. Mm. Newcastle set to face either Norwich or Chelsea. That match ended in a draw, meaning we've got a replay coming very soon. Um, we do have to talk about uh, Antonio Conte's post-match comments in this game because uh, it continues. What I think it's fair to say is a war of words between himself and Jose Mourinho. Have you been following this, Chris, this, uh, this escalation uh, in jibes between the two? Yeah, it's not. Um, yeah, what, what is it they say about bringing the game into disrepute? It's. I, I, I would it's argue getting it's, there. It's getting there. Yeah, it's, it's verging it's, on that territory. I would. I would suggest it doesn't necessarily reflect particularly well on either manager. Um, of course, we have to say Jose Mourinho did seem to uh, to spark the the hostilities, if you will. Um, I think this was on Friday. His pre-match press conference before. Manchester United's uh, Manchester United's own two 0 win in the FA Cup against Derby County. Uh, Mourinho came out and he, he was criticising those in the press who seemed to be suggesting he doesn't have passion. There was a report in the Daily Mail on Friday that he might not be long for the Manchester United job. That he was seemingly unhappy at Old Trafford. His response to that was, you know, this was fake news. Just because he doesn't show his passion on the pitch, just because the phrase he used was act like a clown on the touchline. That doesn't mean he doesn't have passion. Of course, this was interpreted as a jibe towards the likes of Jurgen Klopp and Antonio Conte, who, of course, is very fiery, very passionate on the touchline. I don't think that's an unfair inference on on the part of the press and those reading his comments. It's something that Jose Mourinho uh, frequently does. Uh, Conte did take this particularly well in his own pre-match press conference before the Norwich City game. Uh, Seemed to suggest that uh, Mourinho may have, uh, well, he used the Italian phrase demenza senile, which translates as senile dementia, although the club Chelsea insists he meant to say amnesia. Uh, slight, uh, <laughs> slight difference, yes. yeah, slight technicality there. Um, but he was basically suggesting that Mourinho may have forgotten about his own actions in the past, where, you know, famously in Porto's win at Old Trafford all those years ago in the Champions League, running down the touchline, uh, the, when he was at Real Madrid, sliding on the pitch to celebrate a win. You know, he's guilty of his own. Uh, behaviour on the touchline not exactly being uh, the exemplary shall we say uh, in response to this then Mourinho had a quite remarkable post-match press conference I thought after the uh, the win over Derby where he seemed to suggest the press had taken his remarks out of context and uh, you know taking it as a fact that he was talking about Conte when in fact Mourinho insisted he was talking about himself that it was the press who had distorted this who had uh, taken his, his words wrongly and therefore, putting that to Conte and suggesting that Mourinho was definitely talking about him was was unfair on Mourinho. However, Mourinho said, the one thing you can't say about him is uh, he'll never be suspended for match fixing. So after seemingly uh, blaming the press and seemingly suggesting he wasn't talking about Conte, he then made a very direct and unmistakable jibe in Conte's direction. Conte, of course, accused of failing to report match fixing uh, when he was in charge of Siena. Uh, he was banned for four months by the IFA, the Italian football authorities, uh, while coaching Juventus in 2011. He was cleared of wrongdoing five years later. But of course, as you can imagine, Conte didn't exactly take it very well 
uh, this uh, this accusation and the Mourinho threw his way, bringing up uh, you know a, a dark chapter, shall we say, in Conte's career. Conte's response was to call Mourinho a little man. He's a little man in the present, and for sure he will be a little man in the future. Uh, you know him very well. The level is very low. And I think, uh, not unfairly, he accused Mourinho of insincerity, pointing to the example of you know when Claudio Ranieri was managing Leicester, how Mourinho insulted, I think you could say, Ranieri for his, his, his lack of mastery of the English language. Then, of course, when Ranieri was sacked by Leicester, Mourinho came out with this sort of show of solidarity. Uh, I think I'm right in saying he had a, a Manchester United training top on with the initial CR uh, for Claudio Ranieri. That was his sort of show of support, which, you know, uh, Conte pointing out that hypocrisy, as, as it were, to show that Mourinho is fake. I don't think that's a, a, an unfair assessment. Um, but then fighting words from Conte at the end of this quite extraordinary press conference of his own, saying that uh, it will be an opportunity to clarify things in the game against Manchester United when we go to Old Trafford next month. Me and him, face-to-face. I'm ready. I don't know if he's ready. So, uh, yeah, fighting words there. That's a brief summation of this uh, this escalation in the war of words between the two managers who clearly... There's clearly no love lost, I think it's fair to say. For me, Chris... Uh, I think Conte is obviously responding to Mourinho. He's obviously very angry and he's obviously... Uh, I don't necessarily think he's making unfair points. Mourinho, I think, again, it reflects on this sort of childish personality that he has. Uh, Again, we've spoken about this recently, Mourinho blaming everyone by himself to draw away attention perhaps from uh, any scrutiny that he could be under for, if not performances, then certainly how far United are behind their rival City. For me, I mean... Jose Mourinho is quickly becoming the Donald Trump of football, is he not? Any insult, any sort of jibe that's directed Mourinho's way, he can't help but respond. I don't think it reflects well on Conte particularly, but for me, for Mourinho to escalate, you know, talking about Conte as a clown on the touchline is one thing, to bring up this very serious accusation of match-fixing is completely another. He's taken this feud to another level, and it's not particularly high level. Chris? Yeah, I, th- I think this has been one of the more interesting uh, discussions of, of, of recently, is that when Mourinho first arrived, he was someone that would quite happily sort of dig in at people. He, he wasn't afraid to, to speak his mind and be quite aggressive. Um, I think it, it manifested in, in a few different ways his boldness. You look at calling himself a special one and and things like this, and and there was certainly, I think, a bit more of a, an entertainment factor to what he said and, and a perceived wit in, in what he did. It seems like now that that veil has, has very much fallen and people actually see it as someone who's a little bit more cantankerous than anything. Now, the interesting thing is someone like Sir Alex Ferguson wasn't uh, averse to doing that kind of thing. I mean, I remember when uh, Arsene Wenger arrived in, in England, you know, him him really taking issue with what he perceived as being lectured by Wenger, someone who had come from Japanese football, as, as he put it. Um, so it, it's interesting to see the similarity, but also the difference in the way that is perceived. And I think the thing is with Mourinho, because so, it's so closely tied to his uh, perception, the notion of him putting a barrier between himself and everyone else and his, and his players and building this siege mentality, it, I think it's almost seen as every time he he, he attacks someone or does so, it's seen as having ulterior motives. It's seen as, oh, this is Jose playing a game again. This is Jose trying to, uh, you know, exact something in his in his opponent. I do think there are some times where he's just annoyed. Um, and I think this is perhaps one of those instances where he has taken some kind of, of issue with Conte and is bringing up what he feels are relevant facts. Now, I think at the same time, Conte brings up some some fairly relevant facts. The most pertinent to me, at least, is, is the Ranieri situation. That, yeah, when Jose was at, at Inter Milan, he said that uh, Ranieri was, you know, I think it was nearly 70-something, hadn't won anything. He was 53 at the time, Ranieri. So he wasn't nearly 70. Um, and I think at the same time, we look at Claudio Ranieri as this, as this now elder statesman who, it's almost evokes so much respect and 
and goodwill from from people in uh, English football that you almost look at anyone who would seek to criticise or take a shot at someone like that. There's something wrong with them. Um, and I think that's the, the problem Mourinho has is that even in his, his final days at Chelsea, there was talk that the players had sort of lost um, faith in his approach with the media, throwing his own players under the bus, having a go at Jamie. I think it was Jamie Redknapp he had a go at at one point it's to me at least I do think there's less of a clarity when it comes to Mourinho's media handling approach and I don't think he is almost as premeditated as he once was I think he's a little bit more off the cuff and so sometimes it can be hard to find rhyme or reason with what he does in, in so much as as I said before you could say well this is him trying to get under the skin of someone he wants to ruffle Chelsea before he plays them. I don't think he's doing that here. I, I genuinely think he's he's just essentially taking a, a shot at someone he's not overly fond of. I mean, it's, it's just classic Mourinho. I'm, I'm not saying it's not entertaining. Um, it's only entertaining, as I said. It feels like, you know, with uh, Mourinho calling uh, the journalists garbage news and hitting out at seemingly anyone and everyone who, who he perceives as making a slight against him, like Paul Scholes, as we discussed last week on the podcast. It's, uh, yeah, Donald Trump football is how I would describe Mourinho now. I just don't think it, uh, just as, you know, Trump's behaviour doesn't reflect very well on him, uh, I think it's fair to say it doesn't reflect very well on Mourinho either. And yeah, it's going to be very interesting when uh, when he comes face-to-face with Conte next month when, when Chelsea do play Manchester United. That is going to be tasty. So uh, one to keep the eyes on. Um, Manchester United, of course, uh, drawn Yeovil Town in the fourth round. So uh, you'd expect them to progress there. Uh, elsewhere, we also had, I don't know if you caught Shrewsbury Town versus West Ham United, Chris. Um, I think it's fair to say it was a toothless performance from uh, oh, West Ham. Nice. Quite literally. Yeah, not bad that. Yeah, yeah, not bad. Uh, if you missed this one, it was a pretty entertaining game. Shrewsbury Town uh, made a real go of it. 100% the better team against West Ham, who I think it's fair to say struggled. It was their third game in the last six days, I think. Um, regardless, David Moyes made a few changes. Shrewsbury were the better team. They had a couple of fantastic opportunities to win the game. But there was a particular instant later on in the game where uh, Josh Cullen, a West Ham midfielder who's making his, his domestic debut for the club, got kicked in the face. Sort of one of those where, you know, the ball's not quite high enough to be ruled as dangerous play. You can go in for a header, a foot could also go in for it. He did go in for it. He got kicked in his face and he lost his front tooth there and then on the pitch. Uh, soldiered on as well, which I thought was fantastic. The, the physio had to go and pick his tooth up off the pitch. He apparently went to the, uh, the Shrewsbury Haney afterwards to get it put back in his face but you could actually see it on the replay I couldn't believe you could actually see his tooth fly out of his face um, fair play to him though he did carry on he finished the game uh, but nearly it finished meaning Shrewsbury have earned themselves a replay at the London Stadium um, in the next round I believe if I can bring that page back up where are we uh, in the next round the winner of that tie is going to face Bournemouth or Wigan so uh, yeah real Glamour tie there as well. Uh, Spurs as well, going through. Beating AFC Wimbledon 3-0. Two more goals for Harry Kane. Jan Vertonghen as well, with an absolute peach of a goal. His first competitive goal for Spurs in 1,536 days. So what a way to break his duck there. Um, good win for Spurs. They're now up against Newport County in the fourth round. Again, uh, you'd favour them to win there, I think it's fair to say. It should be a great game, all the same. Premier League um, arrogance on full display. I'll take that. But I was saying that uh, I actually made my debut on the Fighting Cock podcast earlier this week. Fantastic Spurs podcast. Do go and give it a listen. Uh, as I say, I made my debut last week. We were talking about the FA Cup ahead of this game. Um, and I was saying, Chris, I wonder if you agree that you know the FA Cup for Spurs, I think, is an increasingly important trophy this season. It's something we talked about with Spurs in the last few years, about winning trophies, about winning silverware, having that mark of the progress under Mauricio Pochettino. Obviously, the title's gone this season. It's Manchester City's, the Champions League. It's a big ask for Spurs to go and win that. You know, first we've got to get past Juventus, let alone some of the other big hitters, some of the other elite European teams in that competition. The FA Cup does represent a very winnable title, a very winnable piece of silverware for Spurs that can, for me, also mean something. I'm not fussed about the Carabao Cup. I didn't care about getting knocked out. It's, 
I mean, just saying the name there is ridiculous enough. But the League Cup for me doesn't hold any hold any significance. The FA Cup, that's different. I think winning for Spurs this season could be a fantastic achievement. Would you agree? Is it going to get the press off Pochettino's back, off of the Spurs players' back, and sort of uh, sort of alleviate this this speculation, this pressure that seems to be building up around Spurs and around this team? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's... I mean, look, this has been one of the more interesting um, discussions with Spurs is, is, you know, the fact that they haven't won anything. And I mean, in fairness, it's all fly up with Coutinho as well. The fact that, you know... Uh, he's this talented Brazilian worth 140 million, but Anderson has won more Premier Leagues than Alexa. I'm not entirely sure if you can always characterize uh, success by winning stuff. I think it can be true to say that, yeah, Pochettino won't be a truly world class manager until he wins something, but he's also done a tremendous job with, with Tottenham as it stands. And I think. <clears throat> For for a lot of the critics, yeah, until they win something, he hasn't done anything. To a certain extent, I can understand that and almost agree with it. And so if the, the FA Cup provide, provides that means to an end, I think they should take it seriously. <clears throat> because when was the when was the last time Spurs won the FA Cup? Yeah, I feel like you know. We're going back to, what, 91? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's certainly not something they've done recently. Um, and I think it will alleviate a lot of the tension perhaps around Spurs mm. with each passing year because I don't think they're going to win the Premier League this season because I think that's pretty much cities to <laughs> to mess up. I think that's a, that's a salient point. Spurs are not going to win the Premier League. You heard but, it first, but this is the, um, the other thing I would say just quickly is that for a lot of the people who talk about you know the fact they haven't won anything, that doesn't mean mm. that their squads as individuals has not won anything. Vertonghen and Alderweireld have won league titles. I'm pretty sure Lloris won something with, with Leon back in the day. There's mm. players that have won things. I mean, uh, Davinson and Sanchez, I would imagine, won a title with, with Ajax at some stage. So, mm-hmm. it, to me, it's it's a little bit naive to think that until they win something with Spurs, that you know they're going to magically climb over this, this barrier that has been holding them back from success. I think it's, uh, it's very difficult for Spurs, given... Uh, the thing I always try to emphasise is that for me, Spurs have overachieved. I think trying to, to to put aside my support of the club, I think when you look at the the wage bill compared to clubs around them, for Spurs to be challenging for those titles in the past two seasons um, has been an overachievement. At the same time, I think there is this uh, feeling now that there's been a fantastic team assembled. It's time to go to that next level and win something and have that that tangible achievement that we can point to and say, okay, this is the mark of progress under Mauricio Bochino. This is something this team have have achieved. Uh, I think, you know, Harry Kane's comments today were very interesting. Um, he was asked about a new contract. He sort of brought up the fact that he's very happy at the club as long as the, the club keep progressing and crucially start winning trophies, then, you know, he's in no mood to leave. So I think, you know, that's... Uh, as much as it's fantastic for the fans, it's something that we want to be challenging for. Uh, silverware in the Premier League, silverware in domestic cup competitions. I think it is, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing with Coutinho. Coutinho's left Liverpool to go and win silverware. It's what every player wants to win. And I think a club needs to offer a realistic chance of that. And hopefully, for me, I think it would be fantastic for Spurs to win the FA Cup this season. Not only because it's a legitimate and, and fantastic piece of silverware in his own right, but it hopefully as we're sort of talking about, alleviates the pressure. So um, we'll see. We will see. Long way to go yet. It's only the fourth round we're coming up to. Um, the last game we should probably mention in the FA Cup this round is Brighton beating Palace tonight. A 2-1 win in the end. Um, the first competitive game in England in which video assistant referee technology was made available, although it was not used. Uh, the winner, of course, was scored by Glenn Murray. There was some controversy over the goal. It looked like it may have been handled. Um, however, the referee briefly communicated with the VR, VAR team but did not feel a need to consult the pitch side monitor as he was happy with the goal was legal. So I haven't yet seen it working in action. But yes, th- this was the first game when it was available, as it were. There, there seems to be a bit of consternation about this, Chris. I saw a lot of scepticism about VAR. Um, for me, given the... Uh, controversy we've had in recent weeks over certain decisions it can only be a good thing but the the ambivalence towards it seems to stem from 
for example, last week we were talking about that, that Chelsea-Arsenal game, Hector Bellerin, did he foul Hazard, did he not, was it a penalty? It seems to be subjective, that conclusion. That seems to be where the consternation is. How can the VAR help a referee decide those decisions that, as I say, are subjective? Um, it, it can't, really, to, to be quite frank. It, it can't. And, and I think, look, look, this is the thing. that, that I, I read something that said it was estimated about 96% of decisions are, are made correctly. And they believe with VAR it could be 98%. Obviously, when you work in, in football, you, you do kind of watch a little bit of your fandom die in terms of you don't have that perspective of as a match-going fan anymore. <clears throat> when I speak to friends, when I speak to, to people like that, the biggest gripe is usually the lack of consistency. And, and what I mean by that is decisions that go unpunished that could easily be um, caught by uh, you know a VAR official or something along those lines, whereby, say, for example, when Sadio Mane kicked Edison in the face, he was sent off. I think the next day there was an instance in the Huddersfield-Newcastle game where I believe it was Kachunga had a really high boot to the face of Chancellor Mbemba. And I, I don't think, he definitely didn't get sent off, but I think he might have only got booked for it. And so there was a, a lot of uh, consternation from Newcastle fans over what they perceived as, as inconsistency because they went on to lose that game. And if Huddersfield are reduced to 10 men in that moment, it changes the complexion of the game. Now, that's one example I can think of as a Newcastle fan. I'm sure everyone listening has their own nuanced example of this happened here, but then we didn't benefit from an identical situation here. Um, the same with the reviewing penalties like the Debussy one against Forest. fans ultimately just want consistency if, if decision x is given here they expect to see it here as well and i think in instances where that's clear cut it does help things i mean i know that uh players in the bundesliga are almost voted to a majority to to get rid of VR because they don't like it but i do see its benefit at the same time and i think this is perhaps where we need to to test this and maybe just throw it out into the the water for a minute and, and see what it brings in in terms of the quality mm. of decision making right then let's move on to part two we're talking to the bear pit tv's elliot hackney about stoke city finally sacking mark hughes hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Elliot Hackney from the Bear Pit TV on YouTube and Twitter, friend of the show. Finally, it is a pleasure to welcome you on the front three. It's been a long time coming, this ball. A long time coming. It has. I think I originally spoke to you a couple of months ago. I was like, oh, Elliot, as soon as Hughes gets sacked, we can get you on the podcast. You can make your debut. It ended up being months later. We're now in January when he finally has been dismissed after that defeat to Coventry City in the FA Cup on Saturday. I mean, first off, what was your reaction? What are your thoughts as I think it's better to say a very vocal critic of Mark Hughes. Yeah, delighted that he's finally gone. Just hope it's uh, not come too late. Uh, but yeah, it's it's been coming up. It's been a big eighteen months of regression for Stoke City ever since we went out of the uh, the cup semi final at Anfield to Liverpool. It's just been a downward spiral, and uh, nothing seems to have gone right for Hughes since the football's uh, definitely regressed. And it was definitely his time to go. You know, uh, people have been some people have been trying to fight his corner for a while now, but 
even even his backers had no uh, <laughs> no ammo to keep him there, and it was it was right for everyone that he moves on. Yeah, obviously the final straw, that defeat to Coventry City on Saturday in the FA Cup. I mean, just how bad was that in terms of performance? I mean, you were there at the game. Yeah, it was it was absolutely terrible. Uh, Coventry should have been three 0 up uh, in the first half. We didn't have a shot on target, I don't think. And uh, you know, Hughes then threw on the likes of Shakiri to try and rescue it. We obviously got a goal back through the Charlie Adam penalty, and then Coventry struck late on. Uh, to seal the win, which may be a shot that Jack Butland should have done a little bit better with. But Coventry deserved that game. Uh, they, Like I say, they could have won by a bigger scoreline in my eyes. And, you know, it just epitomised everything that was happening with Hughes at the minute. Just another cup final that we're out uh, Cup, sorry, cup competition that we're out of. Mm. Uh, those are the things that a club like Stoke City lives for. And again, we've gone out in the third round like we did last year to Wolves. I mean, you talk there about a pretty dreadful 18 months. It's especially been a pretty dreadful six months this season in the Premier League. Hughes leaves Stoke in the relegation zone 18th. But not only that, they've got the worst goal difference in the Premier League. And they've conceded the most goals too, with 47 goals shipped in 22 matches. I mean, where has it gone wrong for Hughes and for Stoke to be that bad this season? It, never, never mind the worst goal difference in the Premier League, Adam. It's the top five European God. leagues. You're channeling your inner Statman, David. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Spanish by trade. Um, yeah, you know, Hughes, Hughes' failings have been the defence. You know, when Mark Wilson left from the club, he was quite vocal on Twitter about how Hughes apparently does little or next to no defensive training whatsoever. And, you know, you have to think that Mark Wilson might have been a little bit right with that. We are shipping goals left, right and centre. And, you know, Hughes spent £30 million in excess of... Uh, on, on improving the defence this summer in, in signing Bruno Martins permanently uh, Zuma a 7 million loan fee and then obviously spent 18 million on a big slab of, slab of gammon that is Kevin Wimmer yeah. uh, so, so you know it's, it's all his own fault really and it just hasn't worked he persisted with wing backs when we literally haven't got any uh, for the majority of the season and it's it's been his downfall we just can't we just can't keep the goals out mm. we'll come on to the, the signings and the the quality or lack thereof a little later on but I mean in terms of sacking you said it there earlier has it come too late Steve? perhaps not in terms of the table is there only a point technically away from safety but perhaps in terms of the club acting too late with a lot of potential replacements okay they may not be the most inspiring glamorous names but certainly managers who could be effective you know they're now other clubs the likes of Allardyce the likes of Hodgson etc uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I'd love to, to have acted in the summer when there was people like Marco Silva knocking about, like, say, your Allardyces. You could have even maybe gone for Sean Dyche in the summer before we took Burnley to where they are now. Mm. But now it is, it is a sad state of affairs. The manager's obviously Martin O'Neill's been uh, touted. Uh, obviously, Gary Rowett, which we'd have to prize away from Derby, who are doing well in the championship. Uh, and I think that he'd probably be my first choice. But yeah, obviously... Today we've been linked with Slavin Bilic, who's now the odds-on favourite for the job. Hmm. And and then uh, Paul Lambert's thrown his hat into the ring until the end of the season, which is a bit of a strange one. Uh, but yeah, we should have acted sooner, no doubt, when there was a you know a wealth of managers available. Out of those options we're talking about here, I mean, as you said there, uh, Slavin Bilic, apparently the odds-on favourite. Gary Rout, another name that's been linked. I mean, who for you would be the ideal replacement out of those particular candidates? For me, it was originally Martin O'Neill, but I've now warmed to the idea of Gary Rowett, you know, a young up-and-coming manager, did brilliantly yeah. at uh, Burton, then Birmingham before he was let go, uh, weirdly let go, and now he's obviously uh, tearing it up in the championship with Derby. Uh, it, apparently, there's a £1.7 million compensation package to prize him away, and that's nothing in this day and age. And I'd, I'd like to give him a shot. You know, he seems like he's got a good head on his shoulders. I spoke with Rory Delap at the weekend who said that he's a very good manager, uh, although he doesn't doesn't think that we could prize him away. But if we could, you know, even if it were to all go wrong, you know, we've then got a solid manager who can do a job in the championship and will probably have a pretty good go at getting us back up. Nice uh, name drop there. Just hanging out with Roy Delight. <laughs> um, I mean, it's interesting in terms of whoever comes in, they're obviously inheriting, uh, let's say, a difficult situation from Hughes. I mean, you mentioned it earlier in terms of the club regressing. Do you think, uh, you know, things have gone backwards? It was two, well, three consecutive ninth place finishes under Hughes, of course, 13th place finish in his fourth season. I mean, it's an ignominious way to go out given that early success. Yeah, I, I mean, we, there's, you know, you've got to give Hughes the credit where it's due. The first two seasons, we were playing some of the best football that Stoke City's ever seen. There was a there was a spell over a Christmas period where we beat Manchester United at home, we beat Man City at home, we beat Everton four three away, and that was when we were dubbed 
the Stoke owner of the Premier League. So you've got to give him his dues there. But ever since, like I said before, the the, the uh, cup defeat uh, Anfield, it was all regression. The football had just turned sour, uh, and you know Hughes was turning to almost 40 Peter Crouch up front as his first choice. Uh, Mamadouf as a right wing back, who's definitely not one of them. And some of the decisions just weren't making sense to any any of the Stoke fans. And we've brought in Darren Fletcher, who I know Statman Dave's a big fan of, putting him in his Man United all-time exile. Strange one. But it just isn't working out at the minute. An ageing midfield, also Charlie Adam in there for the past couple of games. And, you know, there's so many weak spots in the Stoke side that need to be strengthened. And hopefully if a manager does come in and he's, Peter Coates gives him some money to spend because we need it. That's one of the interesting issues well of Hughes is that uh, the squad the next manager is going to inherit. I mean, do you think that's a squad that can stay up? It's not exactly like Stoke didn't back Hughes in the market. I think it was 33 players signed since 2013 when he joined the club. A few have proved to have been a success, of course. I mean, Gineli and Bula, Saida Barahino, and obviously Kevin Vimmer, who you mentioned earlier, spring to mind as players who cost a lot but haven't really delivered. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's, he's spent money. It's not like he's not had too much to spend, although most seasons we aren't towards the bottom of the spending table. But, you know, he, he has had money to spend. He chased Saido Berahino for three transfer windows, eventually got him. And then, the, the you know, the, the majority of the end of last season was just a fitness test for him. And then he's obviously still not scored. And that's one of biggest Hughes' Hughes's biggest failure is getting a striker who can fire. But like, like you say, the, the squad that a new manager is going to inherit isn't... The worst in the world, I don't think it's the worst in the Premier League. We've got standout players like Jude and Shakiri, a great goalkeeper in Jack Butland, um, some other players across the pitch, Allen in midfield. I think there's a lot to work with there. And depending on the formation and the philosophy that the manager is going to bring in, I think a couple of signings, two or three, would make this into a side that are capable of staying up. Are there any names in particular you'd like to see join in January that you think are maybe realistic targets for a new manager? Um, there's a couple, uh, there's a right back who we've been linked with, uh, Au-pair from Germany. Uh, I can't say I've seen too much of him, but at the, at the moment, any right or left back would do. <laughs> get anyone uh, in, yeah. Get any of them. I really, I'm, I'm, fans aren't a fan of Eric Peters. I think he's, he's more interested in being on the Only Way is Cheshire TV programme uh, with his wife. And uh, probably another man in central midfield and possibly a striker. Um, that, that is where we're really lacking is someone who can actually put them away up front. I know Peter Crouch is, uh, can score now and then, and he, but he is coming to the end of his career and I think he's a great plan B. If we have someone, you know, who's a bit of a finisher, we could just go and put some money out, money uh, for, I think that's where we're falling down at the moment. Do you think one other mistake potentially that the new man would want to avoid is the relationship with the fans? I mean, I know Hughes didn't, exactly do anything on the pitch to endear himself to Stoke fans, particularly in those in those later two seasons, but especially off the pitch, his relationship with the fans was a real failing on Hughes' part. Oh no, the arrogance of the man, the arrogance. Uh, he, was, he was so arrogant and so confident of himself for a man who wasn't in the position to do so. Um, there was an incident at the train station after the defeat to Spurs where um, there was the fans probably wrongly got on the same train back as Stoke fans and then they were at one end uh, one end of the platform Stoke fans were shouting uh, Hughes out and other things and then in his press conference uh, a couple of week, a couple of days later he said oh, I think they were angry because the train doors got stuck it just just some of these things that he's, that he's said to the Stoke fans has been diabolical and there was just this arrogance around the man he was he was doing no favours for himself and he was winning no one on side every every press conference there was something where he was just taking a stab a stab or a shot at the fans it was just, it was just strange to see for a man in his position hmm. Uh, not too sad to see the back of him then. Um, but regardless of who comes in next, be it Slavin Bilic, be it Gary Rowley, do you think Stoke have got have they got enough to stay up essentially? Uh, yeah, I, I think we do. I think I think we're not the worst team in the league. Um, obviously, we've got the worst goal difference, and that usually doesn't uh, does mean that you you're down there about and more, most likely to go down. But I think. We've got we've got enough about our side to be able to turn it around. Ho- hopefully, you know we've got pl- people in there, the old bloods. They can at least give something in the dressing room and inspire some players. You know that's probably one of the main things we're missing is some of the old guard, as you, your Johnny Walters, your Glenn Whelan, because they would do that. I don't think we'd be in that mess now if they were still here. But hopefully, there's still enough of them left to uh, to reinvigorate the rest of the side. 
What about in a broader sense, in terms of the long-term future for Stoke? How do you see them progressing from here? Because obviously, all fans want to see progress. With Stoke, uh, something I always say is that they're stuck in this sort of Premier League purgatory almost, where they're not bad enough to go down, but they're not quite good enough to break into, say, that top seven, that top six. For you, what is progress for Stoke next season and beyond, and what is success as a Stoke fan? You know, the, the, ironically enough, it's a it's a good cup run. What just, we've just gone out of. Uh, that's what clubs in our uh, sort of middle of the table, not in the top six, not in fight for relegation, although we are this season, are, are all about. You know, we, we'd like to get to the uh, further rounds of the cup, whether it be the League Cup, whether it be the FA Cup. That's what we live for. Maybe get a trip, a day out to Wembley, uh, like we did in 2011, where we got to the final and then went on a European tour. Afterwards, that's what we live for and what we want to aim for. Um, Obviously, a new manager can hopefully come in and do that. But at the end of the day, he's also going to need the backing of Peter Coates. Uh, there's there's no doubt that our owners are wealthy. Um, even though they are wealthy, they don't spend as much as they probably should. So hopefully with this new manager comes in, steers us to survival this season. And then, you know, maybe next we can put a little little more uh, money in and go for, have a little more ambition about what we can do in the Premier League. It's mm, a good point. I think, is it Palace, Villa and Hull have been in three of the last four FA Cup finals, so it's not impossible. Uh, we'll see next year if the, if the next manager can deliver that cup run for Stoke. Uh, for now, Elliot, thanks so much for finally coming on the front three. It's been great to have you on. Where can the listeners find more of you? Uh, you can find me on the Bear Pit TV or also my personal handle at Elliot Hackney. Uh, also in the Next Level League or wherever else it may be oh, on yeah. YouTube with Banging you. Banging in the goals. Banging in the goals. Banging in the goals. On Wednesday, you'll see, uh, you'll see a very good performance from Elliot actually against Hashtag United. No spoilers necessarily. But uh, yeah, there's goals. There are goals. There are plenty of goals. Right, we're back for part three. A little bit of transfer chat because uh, only the second biggest transfer of all time happened over the weekend, Chris. Uh, Philippe Coutinho has finally joined Barcelona. A British record 160 million euro deal, 142 million pound deal. Um, has been a long time coming. It feels like, um, I mean, first off, in terms of Barcelona, what do you they're getting for the second most expensive player of all time? Is, is he the marquee signing that they've been looking for? Uh, yeah, yes, I, I, think, I think ultimately he... He is a, a very talented individual. There's no denying that. I think the reason they've done this deal now is because, firstly, they want to provide some rotation to Andres Iniesta. Obviously, Coutinho can't play in the Champions League, but he can play in, in La Liga. Um, and at the same time, I think they were a little bit worried that if Coutinho went to Russia and had a standout tournament or, say, there was another stark rise in, in transfer fees... A bit like when Pogba joined Man United, everyone thought, wow, this is crazy. You know, this is a fee that will um, potentially set the bar. And it very much did because you had Mbappe, you had Neymar almost doubling that, I think, with within the space of a summer. So there's a potential that that happens again, whether you believe so or not. And I think Barcelona looked at that as a risk they couldn't take. Because they probably couldn't afford mm. 200, 225 million. Um, Honigstein, even uh, Raphael Honigstein, said today that that Klopp reportedly reached out to Dortmund when they weren't going to sell Coutinho and said, "Look, bump your price up for Dembele because we're not going to sell Coutinho." So you see that kind right. of the shifting of the market forces, if you will, through transfer fees. And I think Barcelona were trying to be preemptive by signing him in January for for this fee. In terms of replacement, I don't think he's a direct replacement for, for Neymar and what Neymar offered uh, Barcelona, but I do think he's a player that will fit in quite well in, into that team, into its style of play and into its uh, ethos under Valverde. I'm just going to look at one little thing here. <laughs> Um, uh, I think it's interesting you're talking about those forces there almost in the transfer market I saw Tim Vickery um, who's obviously a very insightful journalist in his own right talking about the influence Nike maybe had on this transfer obviously with Neymar leaving uh, Nike sponsor Brazil they sponsor Barcelona Coutinho is a Nike athlete it's the perfect synergy there to have Coutinho join the club gives them that marketable asset in the lead up to the World Cup so it's interesting to to consider that um, uh, in terms of Liverpool I mean there's been a lot of talk about how Liverpool 
you know, they, they, they really shot themselves in the foot by selling Coutinho in January. They're risking their chances of qualifying for the top four, of, of making it a top four finish in consecutive seasons. I think there's a lot to, there's a lot yet to happen in that respect. There's talk of signing Mahrez, which the club has denied. The club is trying to play, play down. There's talk of making a move for Thomas Lamar. There's talk of trying to bring Naby Keita's move forward. Uh, they've agreed a deal in the summer with RB Leipzig that he will join Liverpool. The reports are that Jurgen Klopp is trying to bring that forward to the January transfer window. So I think there's factors at play here, which mean we can't really give a, a full judgment because there's, you know, the, the transfer window is still open. But do you think that's a fair assessment that Liverpool are risking unnecessarily so their chances of, uh, of qualifying for the top four this season, Chris? No, not really. I think I think they've got the the attacking assets they need. Um, I had a, an interesting chat with. Um, I'm trying to think of his name. I'm drawing a blank for a second. There, Andy Heaton. That was who I was thinking of. Um, who works with the Anfield Rap? Who are, if you're a Liverpool fan and, and not ingesting and following following their content then uh, you're making a, a big mistake and he was saying that actually he doesn't think Coutinho is a, a Klopp player and I thought that was an interesting observation because I think you will probably see this team change a little bit more come the summer when Keita arrives and so I think part of that transition is already undergoing now and, and I think Obviously, he was always going to leave him out on Friday against Everton because you know, if there's even a chance he picks up an actual injury or something like that, it's just too risky. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think it has a, a hugely drastic impact. The thing that I find quite curious about this deal is the talk, and you alluded to it there, that Nike paid uh, some part of, of the fee. I'm not sure on the specifics. I think there's Mundo Deportivo that, that reported it. And it, it reminds me ever so slightly of the Neymar deal and the fact that uh, he was paid to be a, a Qatari ambassador for the World Cup, which helped him pay his, his own release clause. And and the curiosity I have, I'd be really curious to get your opinion on it, is do you think this is going to be a little bit more of a regular occurrence now? Because it, it does seem, like for the, for the elite level players at least, that companies, organisations, whatever, even countries, I guess, in the case of Neymar, are willing to play a role in freeing up these these high-level players if it serves some kind of benefit to them. Yeah, I think so. I think there's a huge... There's a huge benefit to these these stars. It's going to be the... the incredibly lucrative and marketable stars like Neymar, like Ronaldo, like Messi. It's, you know, there was talk when Pogba made his move about how, you know, as an Adidas athlete, it was the perfect synergy again about uh, getting an Adidas athlete to Manchester United to be that marketable asset to sell tons of t-shirts, to sell tons of boots, all this sort of stuff. I think it definitely does have uh, an influence. I think another thing that has an influence that I'm interested in, particularly with regards to the Coutinho deal, is... Do you think Liverpool could have done anything to keep him? It was clearly a move that he was desperate to make and there's talk about how he may have paid £11 million of his own transfer fee, be it that you know he, he accepted a lower wage from Barcelona but essentially sort of paved the way economically, Barcelona hinted, in order to make the move happen. Is there anything Liverpool could have done to stop Coutinho going to Barcelona? Or is it simply that for these South American players like Coutinho, um, like Suarez, who we saw as well move to Barcelona from Liverpool, is the allure of Real Madrid and Barcelona, these two super clubs, just too much for the Premier League to hold on to their key superstars? Is there any way that these English clubs can challenge them and keep hold of their key assets? I think it is very dependent on the individual. And I say that because in the case of Coutinho, Barcelona have had, I think, something like 130 um, Brazilian since Romario um, in the 90s and I think that club in particular has a huge pull to Brazilian players um, you look all the way through the years whether it's Rivaldo or Dani Alves or Neymar it certainly has this allure to them and I think the second a Brazilian player is presented with the chance to go there um, it is very difficult for an English club or even a club in, in Liverpool's position to, to hold on to that player. So when it comes to looking retrospectively with hindsight and saying, could they have done anything different? Could they have you know tied him down to a new contract? The truth is, I think no. Um, I think in the wider picture of things, Barcelona and, and Real Madrid, I do think they stand at this precise moment 
on a little plinth of their own in terms of being able to, to attract any player in the globe on in the globe on the globe yeah any any player on on the globe any player in world football yeah, flat say, any player um, on, on in world football to their do, club do you think that's uh, do you think that's an emotional pull we're talking about the the popularity almost of the club in brazil and and, and why that there is that that yearning from players to, to move to these clubs or do you think it's uh, as we sort of mentioned earlier with regards to silverware do Barcelona and Real Madrid offer the best chances of winning the most coveted silverware in Europe, which is not only the Champions League, but also the Ballon d'Or? Of course, Messi and Ronaldo are phenomenal players, but does that league, do those teams give a player like Coutinho, uh, like Bale, like Suarez, the opportunity to at least compete for that trophy, which increasingly is becoming as coveted as the Champions League, as I mentioned? I think I think that's part of it. I think the other thing is it's it's relatability almost, and and what I mean by that is when I've spoken to players of of Latin descent or Latin heritage, often when they talk about their childhood memories, it involves Barcelona, it involves Real Madrid, and so I think on the one hand they see themselves being able to achieve a Champions League victory or whatever if they join that club, but I think they also see the established history those two have of doing that kind of thing, of winning La Liga, of winning the Club World Cup, the Champions League, whichever trophy you, you want to talk about. And I think that plays a big part. Um, for example, Arsenal have never won the Champions League. Chelsea won it, but, but only kind of fairly recently. It wasn't something that this generation will have grown up watching, I don't think. Same applies to Manchester City. When you look at the the sort of dominance of, of European football. I'd say 2007, 2008, every year since then, one of, at least, Barcelona, Real Madrid and Bayern Munich have been involved in, uh, I think it's the semi-finals onwards. So you have to look at that situation and say, well, if I'm a, a young player growing up from in that decade, it could be anything from, what, 20, 21 to, to 29 I've grown up with those two with those two or those three sorry being the established elite and I think that's what plays as, as big a role as anything is that they're able to see themselves in that position and that's what makes it appealing can we also not overlook the money on offer to uh, to the likes of Coutinho I think his salary is going to be 10.5 million pounds a year now uh, mm. Barcelona and Real Madrid offering wages far above what Premier League clubs could offer? I don't know if it's far above, though. That's the thing. With the, with the influence of, of TV money, you have to remember that uh, La Liga has fairly recently restructured um, that, so it's less of a, a hegemony for Barcelona and Real Madrid in terms of the way TV money is distributed. Because at one stage, I think a club like Racing Santander was earning about a tenth of... of of what Real Madrid was earning and and look Real Madrid fans may argue that's fair because we're the big draw people are watching us they're not watching Racing Santander I understand that but you know you almost need to, to take care of everyone otherwise you will develop that sort of uh, two horse race that is often the case with or has often been the case I should say with La Liga um, whereas the Premier League it, it's there's a, a slight disparity I mean I think the Champions Last year earned 150 and Sunderland earned 100 and they finished bottom. So there is a difference, but for the most part, the actual TV money itself at a base point starts at everyone getting that 100 million, which is a which is a lot. And I think that um, you look at the the elements of of the business side of things that would benefit Liverpool if they were to have a player like Coutinho around shirt sales, image rights, that kind of thing. That will go into um, the justification for paying someone like him that amount. So I don't think it's impossible for a club like Liverpool to pay that as as potentially damaging as it might be to any wage structure that they have in place, a little bit like how Tottenham do. Yeah, I do wonder, yeah, I think Barcelona are paying around 200 grand a week for Philippe Coutinho on his new contract. I do wonder if and when potentially the Barcelona are going to be willing to issues with their wage bill. I think uh, the re recent report I saw was that their wage bill was something like 600 million euros this season with the wage to revenue ratio being 
So 84% of their outgoing is on wages, which seems insane. Um, but yeah, there's there's perhaps a lack of wage structure there that well, I should probably think about it. Mike, uh, might come back badly on them. Um, before we go, we need to talk about the other big transfer news, which is uh, developing today and seems to be gathering pace, is Alexis Sanchez to Manchester City. It's obviously a move that Sanchez was linked with in the summer. A £60 million deal was on the table. It looked like it was going to go through on the final day of the transfer window, but all fell apart. City now set to make a fresh bid for the Chilean, according to The Guardian. Um, obviously set to become a free agent at the end of the season with a contract expiring, meaning Arsenal are demanding, or can demand, uh, only around £30 million for him, which I think is still a, a great free for a player who, as I said, could leave for free in the summer. Uh, obviously, Gabriel Jesus injured for Pep Guardiola's side right now, meaning that uh, the Catalan is, is willing to push this through in January, wants to sign Sanchez. Um, it seems like this could be increasingly likely, Chris. All the talk is that Sanchez has become an unpopular figure in the Arsenal dressing room in recent months. The opinion overall being that perhaps it would be best for the club to sell him in January. Um, do you think this is the right move, not only for Arsenal in selling Sanchez, but also the right move for the player and for City as well to add yet another asset to their already fearsome front line? I don't think City need him. Really don't. I think, I mean... Could you, it's not that they need him, but do they not not need him? Could it just, is there any harm in just adding another player of the quality of Alexis Sanchez into their side if they can? Um... I mean, the only potential risk is disruption, but I don't think he's going to disrupt anything because, look, he wants to win the Premier League. And I think having seen what he was like with with Chile and also, in fairness, what he's been like at times with Arsenal is that he can be a leader, he can be a positive influence. And, I, and so I don't think he would, um, he would be of detriment to that. Um, I, I think the... the thing is though again it, it just feels so unnecessary I think they've got enough quality. I appreciate that the Gabriel Jesus may be injured um, for a long time but at the same point he will come back and, and I think um, it, it just feels a bit like overkill and and from an Arsenal standpoint I think <laughs> yeah, I mean it does to a certain degree I can't lie look if I was a City fan I would I would be waving the V's at everybody Um as I rode my open-top bus through the middle of Manchester. But I think the, the thing from an Arsenal perspective is, yeah, realistically, they're, they're going to lose him for nothing in the summer. If you can mm. get some of the money back for a player that clearly doesn't want to be there, obviously doesn't have the, the World Cup to consider. Um, yeah, they're not in the World Cup, Chile. No, they're not, are they? Uh, no. So he doesn't have sort of anything to work towards this season. Yeah, I think getting rid of him wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be the worst thing in the world because it's not going to do anything. And really, at the same time, um, I don't think that he would bring a huge amount to the club if he was to stay there anyway. Because, like I said, I don't think his his heart's in it anymore when it comes to Arsenal. Yeah, I think Arsenal have to sell him. They have to get a fee for him. Now, because as you say, is his contribution going to be so significant uh, throughout this season? I think it obviously puts Arsenal in a difficult position, but that's a whole other conversation about their management of their of their contracts, which historically has not been great. But I think you know, if Gabriel Jesus is out for the rest of the season, uh, I think it makes sense for Guardiola to bring in someone like Sanchez who can play as in that forward role. Given that you know the Premier League is almost essentially one. Um, but the Champions League, there is a real opportunity. I think City are among the favourites in that competition. Um, and obviously, uh, Sanchez not club tied in that competition, uh, because as we all know, Arsenal are playing in it. it. It just makes sense to me, I think. It's a cut price deal of £30 million for a player of Sanchez's quality, who otherwise would cost you, as we saw in the summer, at £60, £70 million. For me, it makes sense. And if City can afford it, which they certainly can, if they can accommodate him and fit him into their squad as they can with Jesus out it kind of all makes sense to me so I think increasingly it seems like this deal will happen um, and yeah I think <laughs> as if we didn't know already that's the league done for, for Manchester City uh, let's see if it if it, see if it takes another level in the Champions League because obviously that, that's the big question for Guardiola given their performance last season I think that's a big thing for him and given how it went at Bayern Munich that is almost I think a, a 
very realistic aim for them to to win that competition this season. I think Sanchez makes that a more realistic possibility. Um, the final bit of transfer news we should probably mention that I'm seeing here is about Meza Ozil. Um, reports in the British press that Juventus are going to join the race to sign him. Again, uh, unbelievable, spectacular mismanagement from Arsenal to let a player of Ozil's quality uh, run down his contract and you know potentially be losing him for free in the summer. I think if Sanchez does go for that fee, as we said, for Manchester City, they will keep hold of Ozil and be resigned to, to losing him for, for no fee uh, in the summer transfer window. Uh, in terms of the, the, the destination, though, Juventus or Manchester United... Or Arsenal, I guess he could potentially sign a new contract there. If you're Meza Ozil, Chris, if you're uh, an immaculate German playmaker, where are you going when you've got the choice of these three destinations in the summer? What three destinations do I have a choice from, sorry? Juventus, Manchester United, under uh, under your old pal Jose Mourinho, right. or stick it out, Arsenal. Ooh, that's a good one. Do quite like Italy. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I'd go for you. Put yourself in Ozil's shoes, you know. It's not your, but, you know, what, what's Ozil about? Oh, um, I mean, I imagine there's part of him wants to win the Premier League, so the best option there is to go on Manchester United. Um, mm. And wait for Guardiola to leave. Right, and so. and the thing is, it, Italy could go one of two different ways. It could be perfect for him because it's a thinking man's style of football. But at the same time, it could go horrendously because it's maybe... At the same time, a thinking man's game, and and he could find less space and and be forced to work harder to to engineer those chances. You know. Yeah, if it was me, I mean, he's spoken his his autobiography about his admiration for Jose Mourinho about how his his approach took him to a, a different level. But if it was me, I'm not going to work for Mourinho. Uh, I'm definitely not saying Arsenal. I think Juventus could be a very interesting potential destination for Mesut Ozil. Uh, it remains to be seen what happens with the German playmaker, but that is it for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed this little front two session with myself and Chris. Uh, thanks again to Elliot Hackney uh, from the Bear Pit TV for coming on the podcast. Friend of the show, do go and check out the Bear Pit TV on YouTube and on Twitter. Uh, we're going to be back on Thursday, guys, with a Q&A podcast, a long overdue Q&A podcast. So do get your questions in on Twitter at the front free until Thursday though Chris where can the listeners where can the whole find you at K Hennage very good uh, guys you can find me on Twitter at Adam Ballwood as I mentioned earlier I made an appearance on the Fighting Cock podcast the best Spurs podcast on the entire internet earlier this week Friday's episode so do go and check it out until Thursday guys have a bloody great week 